and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid and I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Ashanti. I'm your other host. And we are back for episode A. What? Ocho. Churn, baby, churn. (laughs) (laughs) We have taken a little bit of a hiatus because life be lifing. Hard. Wow. Just disrespectfully. (laughs) And ultimately, we are relatively um, live and active with our recordings. We try to, you know, roll those out relatively close to when we do them. And so sometimes we just be missing. (laughs) Yeah, it happens. I mean, we're human, right? Absolutely. That's how you know. Hold on. That's how you know this is not AI. Ooh. That is how you know. You couldn't this tell me by AI. my velvety, chocolatey voice that it wasn't AI? Like, <laughs> you think AI is coming through like this? Sis. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Dang. So you've been hearing some stuff? <laughs> no, I'm trying to stay away from all that. Okay. All right. I'm avoiding well, it for now. You know, it's inevitable, but. what? Why do you say it's inevitable? I mean, everybody's going to try to use it to create things and it's. The world is just going to lose the human touch, I feel. But that's just the that's just my opinion. World. The whole world. Yep. AI is in here going, I got the whole world <laughs> in my hand. I got the whole wide world in my hand. That's AI. Is that that's what you're AI. saying? Yep. The AI is going to wow. do that. Wow. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I think people really are like... They're trying to find innovative ways to stay present that has nothing to do with AI. So we'll see what ends up flowing out. Okay. But in this not so, you know, doomsday kind of discussion where we're (laughs) all saying bye-bye to our relevance because uh, artificial intelligence has taken over, um, we want to continue to kind of dig into the consideration about clinical practice, what we're doing, how we're considering it. Um, that perspective of the traditional approach or the academic approach that most of us are taught, very structured, very clinical, very inside a certain box within the parameters of the normative sample. Um, There are some aspects that we really just unpacked. Um, The first one was the hierarchy or the idea that, hey, you know, let's look at evidence-based practice and how it's really looked at. It really is a sense of research. But we've also considered that SLPs don't enjoy that, you know, that level of weakness that we consider in our research is something that's really prevalent. And so we need to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, 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 this is how structured healthcare is moving. We need we need data points and we need qualitative information or quantitative information, excuse me, to like get some reimbursement back at us. Um, Diagnostic codes that really fit within the deficit that we're seeing when Sometimes there's deficits where you're just like, ooh, there's actually not kind of, sort of a diagnostic code, or there is one that I'm going to just stuff you in because you're kind of an outlier. And Mm -hmm. all the creative things that we as uh, practitioners are trying to do for our evolution um, with the population. Like we want to be on top of the of the population diversifying itself um, through generational changes since... uh, you know, the time where it wasn't so separated. Like we we really are moving into a bit more 
of a, a space of considering, wow, I'm going to be encountering people that are not, you know, diagnostically like me, historically like me, uh, linguistically like me, mm-hmm. um, you know, psychologically like me. I'm going to be encountering people that are actually incredibly different from me and I have to provide care for them. So that's something I really like to hone in on is that, you know, there's this idea of assimilation, sameness. We can do the, the same across the board. Um, that's why we don't see color. That's why we don't see gender. That's why. But ultimately, that's a really lovely surface way to begin. But when it comes to like clinical practice, we've got to get really dug in to register those elements of psychology and history and linguistics plays a significant part into our practice as uh, providers in speech-language pathology, especially if we're going to be addressing the marginalized group of people that are underrepresented in our in our resources and in our um, research and in our evaluation setup mm-hmm. structure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, Ashanti, I kind of wanted to dig into that with you, particularly because you work in the childhood sector with the school system. And I kind of want to unpack a little bit what it is that you were accustomed to in terms of, you know, you went through the, the literacy program at UCF, like you were taught so much structure and how to be in schools and how to deal. You also had Dr. Rosa Lugo, who was probably the most powerful, multiculturally focused individual I've ever met in my life. And I love her for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she taught that course like nobody's business, but she was also the lead for the master's in education for literacy for SLPs to go into the school systems and have that additional education under their belt. So talk to me a little bit, if you don't mind, share a little bit about what was the foundation of your practice and what it was supposed to look like to you. And then what you kind of discovered as you exited and you're like, Ooh, you know, what ended up being the evolution there? So, um, just so that we can kind of cover it in the aspects of this is the traditional aspect, what other SLPs are doing. This is what we're all taught and really have that clear delineation. So Take it away, girl. <laughs> well, the traditional sense of it all is, you know, you test, you get your scores, you write your goals, you treat, rinse, wash, repeat, right? Um, but where do you find those in, those pieces of information? Because you treat, we all treat regardless, but mm-hmm. how do you create a goal? Do you use the traditional goals that we were, because we were taught, like, you need to have this S, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Yes, you've got to pronounce so. this like this. And, you know, these are the norm. This is the normative data that we're comparing all of our students to. So initially, you know, as an early SLP, that's what I was doing. Um, I think it didn't take very long for me to realize, yeah, this doesn't work for everyone. But, you know, I should say that I was in a lot of a lot of um schools that were a little bit more diverse uh, than the normative body, right? Do you have a particular moment in your career where you sit back and go, that was it? Was it based on a diagnosis of a student, a cultural background of a student? Um, You know, what was the like, ooh, I don't think this is good. So I spent uh, five years in California and Two of those years I was working in 
um, schools that were located on a military base. Um, these children, it was it was more of a diverse body, yes. However, the frequency with which kids were leaving and arriving and leaving and arriving and having to look over the paperwork and see what their goals were and analyze what it is that they were working on previously, you know, um, checking progress reports to see if they were progressing. It, it all was a, a huge eye opener as to how differently SLPs treat, um, how differently SLPs and different districts, you know, all together uh, write goals, write their evaluation reports and so that kind of forced me to look at each kid with a little bit less of a what score did, you know, what were the scores versus what is it that they actually need right now? Does that make sense? So it does. But let me unpack that a little bit. When you sure. were saying you're looking at all these documents, you're looking at what different SLPs from different places are doing, is there right. a common thread to what you're seeing? Is what component is missing that's making you go, I need to do this with a more individualized perspective, even though there's diversity in how we practice as SLPs from one goal writer to another or one evaluator mm -hmm. to another because we are individual in our interpretation of deficits. What were you identifying in the goals that were being created and the interventions that were being provided that made you go, I need to take in some additional considerations that I'm not seeing from other practitioners? Right. With So with the military child population, we don't know where they're ending up, right? I don't, I'm not sure where they're going. They don't know where they're going sometimes. They, you know, they come into your school district you have to do what you can, treat what you can while you have them, and then they leave. You don't know if they're staying stateside or if they're going overseas. And so my bigger focus for that body of students was what is it that they need right now? If it was a child with, you know, an Arctic um, disorder, how am I helping them to communicate more clearly Obviously, it's a little bit easier to focus on percentages, you know, when we're working on phonemes. But, um, you know, a, a student with a language disorder, maybe I'm not going to focus on they're going to express themselves and ex express themselves in grammatically correct sentences using X, Y, Z, you know, uh, grammatical forms. Maybe I'm just going to focus on what is functional so that this child can be successful in the classroom. That's and a great I, and word, I, functional. I like yes. that you said functional. How did you determine functionality and why was that more of a priority for you than achieving the objectives with the goals? What, in the sense of how they're written in these clinically, you know, kind of almost easily prescribed objectives for, mm -hmm. okay, this language goal is going to be here for you. Um, and I, I regularly utilize this. This is something I'm really familiar with, this language goal. Why would you think about it differently in this functionality? Um, and how would you determine what was functional for them in their space? I had to really look at how the child was communicating in the classroom setting, right? If they're it doesn't matter to me if they're using semantically correct this, that, or the other, or if they're 
correctly utilizing past tense verbs or anything like that. It doesn't matter to me if they aren't communicating in the classroom at all. So it became more of a focus on, like I said, you know, functional communication. And for a lot of my students, self-advocacy. Um, are they able to tell the teacher, uh, a paraprofessional, a fellow student, what it is that they want, what it is that they need, what it is that they need help with, you know, or just even share something personal, a story, a funny joke, anything. So that more, that more so was my focus um, than getting a textbook out and saying, okay, well, they're not using, you know, present progressive ING or auxiliary, auxiliary verbs or whatever. I, I just wanted them to be successful in being able to communicate whatever they wanted to communicate in the classroom setting. Okay. So that's fair. And that's a clinical deviation. That's a, that's a decision that you're like, okay, I'm going to look at this differently. Right. Now the question becomes, why is that valuable? What did you feel like would be the problem if you continue to do what those other SLPs were doing by really targeting those goals and achieving those objectives, which is what we typically do. And you'll see it over and over and over again. Right. Where did you, did you have experience or did you ever identify where if I continue to practice this same way, I'm going to actually cause this student not to make any gains, number one, it's not going to be relevant to their lives, number two. Like, how did you determine this pivot in your practice? Was it from your teaching, from Dr. Rosa Lugo? Was it from a particular case that you had with a student? What what was causing that in California where you're just like, ooh, I don't like the way this looks Mm -hmm. and I want to make a change um, because I'm motivated to be there for um this person and it and i'm not seeing that the way that it's like what was that ooh that red light for you or that right superpower thing that said okay this is actually i need to do something that's different because it's actually going to be better in my personal opinion Mm -hmm. so i think a big red flag for me was seeing goals that have been repeated um you know, I <laughs> I used to work alongside a um, a school psychologist and actually share an office with her. And she she complimented me one day and said, "You you do a really great job of going through their records or going through their file." And so I would actually look back at least three IEPs. I know that sounds crazy. I, some people might be shaking their heads right now, saying, "Who has time for that?" I made the time for it. You know, it, it was important to me. So if I see that this goal this goal about semantics or this goal about grammatically correct um, um, uh, structures was done more than once. We're missing the we're missing the point here, right? Um, a lot of times the students have co- comorbidities um, in that maybe they have a specific learning disability, and reading and writing is not their jam, and so. Why am I going to sit here and focus on these really literate, you know, literacy based tasks when they're not doing well with reading and writing? So 
I'm going to leave that to the reading specialist. I'm going to leave that, you know, to the the other service providers that are attacking that because they have specific goals for that, right? I'm going to make sure that, okay, they're working on that. So let's make sure this child can communicate effectively and functionally. And and I think that's where this the the shift happened for me. So in that space of kind of registering that there are other people working on other teammates in right. the in the academic environment for these particular students. When you said you made time as a mother of two <laughs> and a wife with a full caseload in the military, mm-hmm. where, where, where was the at, time? At work. The time was at work. I, I did not take these things home. Um, you know, I want to make sure that's very, very clear. <laughs> abundantly clear. I, I abundantly was clear. I, for the man at home. Right. I am not doing this at home. I'm doing this during normal working hours. How big was your caseload? Oh, man. So when I was on base, I've, I want to say I had 85 it was, it oh, was so light work, light work. It, oh yeah. Psh, light work. <laughs> although, although the rumor was that, um, in the state of California at that time, there was a cap and I was well above the cap. Um, yeah. I want to say California has really strict caseload expectations. Caps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was well above the cap and so <sighs> understanding work workload versus caseload right um i i just did what i needed to do you know there are times where yes you're going to miss a session or you're going to have to cancel a group to do a deep dive and get to the root cause of what this child needs or what what you can help them with um better you know um I think uh, the other, I, I mentioned that I was in California for five years. So the other three years, I was working for um, a very, very small rural um, school district. And the majority of the families there were migrant farm workers. And so that was another big eye-opener for me in that the person before me, you know, had done a very traditional model of doing the assessment, you know, writing the report, writing the goals based on what the weaknesses were um, during the assessment process. And it wasn't working for them. <laughs> again, they achieving at, the goals is what you're saying. They were not achieving the goals. Um, again, I, I would see a lot of repeat goals. And this isn't to say that you should never repeat a goal. If the child needs to keep working on something, they need to keep working on something. But you should at at the very least change something, change your approach, change your expectation of of, um, accuracy or um, frequency. You know, something has to be altered so that it's achievable. Ah, So critically assess the situation. Correct. Correct. Right. Right. And so, with that, um, with that student body in the in the rural um, school district, 
there were a lot of families that were Spanish speaking at home and the child, the student that I was working with was the only one that spoke fluent English or quote unquote fluent English, right? Um, And so there were many cases where I saw the need to assess this child in Spanish as well. So I created a lot more work for myself and any other person would have been like, why did you do that? You're crazy. You're making it harder for yourself. But I couldn't with a clear conscience continue working at the school district knowing that deep down inside, I know this is possibly not a language disorder. This might be a language difference, right? How often did you find it being a difference over a disorder? In that, in that school district, I'm trying to put a number on it. Let's, I believe I, I asked for permission for testing, um, for about a dozen students and maybe, maybe three of them were truly not language disordered because they killed it when I, I, you know, they, they did great when I assessed them in Spanish and then bombed it in English. Mm. And so, you know, that's where you have to in, um, consider Bix versus Calp, right? Um, mm-hmm. are, are they, they're communicating in English, but are they understanding the academic um, content in their classroom? No, Mm. (laughs) you know, conversational English is very, very different from academic English. And then, you know, when you consider, you know, anyone above the second grade, they're not learning to read, they're reading to learn. And so if this child is having difficulty with the English language and now they have to read this paragraph and remember the information and answer these questions, and it's just not making sense because this is not the language that they're strongest in that's not fair right you know and so the fairness of it all is where i'm going to really like put a pin in this right um when it comes down to our clinical practice there is a way to separate the person Mm -hmm. from themselves and make them the same as everyone else and not consider context, which does incorporate history, linguistics, psychology, and all of that, including their cultural background, plays a part. I think you as a provider who happens to speak Spanish as a native language on top of English and being able to offer that additional service gives you a level of a superpower because you can understand that even if that, if those three crushed it in Spanish and they don't have actual language deficits, they're still going to have issues in the classroom because the classroom is for native English speakers. Right. And ultimately you want to support their ability to be successful in the classroom, but the teacher has to also take in the consideration of the linguistic background of that child and make the appropriate accommodations. And that's not the America we really live in. 
Correct. You have to hit your expectations. <laughs> Correct. And a lot so, of times mm-hmm, kids will be on case. Place. Yeah. Right. A lot of times children will be on caseload and you're just like, they shouldn't even be on caseload. That's and, the rock in the hard place. Mm-hmm. That's the rock in the hard place for speech pathology mm-hmm. because we want to advocate, but because we don't want to rock a boat and we don't want to leave this child in a like a vacant place where right. maybe English as a second language is not necessarily supporting the academic goals for those students. Um, we kind of want to be the filler because we're so interested in helping. Right. Um, the thing that I would want to give to SLPs in general is the consideration that you're a whole person, you know, you're coming in with what you know, what you've experienced, and that makes up a lot of how you do the work. Mm -hmm. And if you're from spaces in which you have more intersectionality, there's going to be a level of sensitivity that's going to cause you to consider a different approach is better. That's something you indicated, Ashanti, in your dialogue, like, this was just better for them to be more Mm -hmm. functional, to have this. It's just better for them. Now, the determining factor of what's better comes down to the clinical practitioner Mm -hmm. because there may be a practitioner that hears you and go, why do you think that's better? Why do you feel like that's more beneficial? They have to hold value as a practitioner to consider that, yeah, it is better. And as an individual that may fall in marginalized spaces that really don't have the equal footing as the norm, um, Mm -hmm. people having value in those historical differences, those linguistic differences, those cultural differences, those, you know, psychological differences, even medical differences. I mean, the science with African-Americans being more, um, likely and susceptible to having sickle cell anemia simply because malaria was a big thing in different countries in Africa. And so we're more prone for that. Even Mm -hmm. medical issues are part of our makeup as individuals. When those things get dismissed into the space of sameness, the value of why it might be better gets lost in translation. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what's really causing a difficulty, I think, for practitioners to understand that I get it. You want to just assess this child that may come from a different place and go, it doesn't matter. We all need to learn these skill sets. So I'm going to test you this way. And if you fail, I'm going to I'm going to get on it. And then I'm going to use approaches that I'm used to using. Mm-hmm with other students that are more successful with you and you're just going to keep having this problem and it's never going to get better. And I don't know any practitioner that feels good about not making progress. Right. So. Right. And I I think that's what you're you're showing that that's what I really am teasing out is like, were you successful with making these modifications, being that diligent with looking at three IEPs, being that, you know, person that's like, I'm going to go the extra mile and test them in English. Do you feel that you made gains with these students more than your predecessors, more than other SLPs? 
And I want you to be perfectly honest about that interpretation. So, so when we, when we talk about gains, my focus was functionality. How is this child communicating, whether it be communicating clearly or communicating what they, you know, their intended message. And so in my opinion, when I focused on functionality, I made greater gains or not even I, cause I wasn't doing the work. I was providing the, the tools to help them. Right. I feel mm-hmm. as if my students were making greater, bigger gains by working on what's functional and, and what they needed versus working towards um, the normative data points. Someone might have a different opinion, um, but for me, I you know as the the provider, I felt more successful with those students when I can send them off to their next place or to the next grade as a better overall communicator. I mean, isn't that just like the basic schmasic of what we want to help them do <laughs> supposedly right i don't i don't know the answer to that question i do think that slps partner a lot with teachers and if a teacher's not satisfied the slp will continue um, there's also some elements of like if a pa- parent is not satisfied an slp will continue um which is why our caseloads are becoming astronomical. Right. I was going to say that that is what contributes to just the crazy caseloads that we carry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do want to say that I would work very closely with the team, you know, reading specialist, you know, other team members that were assisting with these children that need special services. And it's all in the justification statements, you know, I'm not going to work on this because X, Y, Z, or I'm going to focus more on this rather than that because of this, you know, this reason. And when everyone is on the same page or at least in the know of what your approach is and why you're approaching it that way, you, you, you're more supported. Um, and teachers and other staff members will start to see the importance of what it is that you're doing Mm. instead of focusing on, well, I still can't understand a word that comes out of his mouth. They're going to come to you and say, Hey, I wanted to share with you that little so-and-so raised his hand and, you know, and, and shared an entire sentence during this discussion and they never do that. Mm. So, you know, it's all about that. You know, what is it that you're, you're trying to, help this child do? Do you want them to reach this normative data point? Or do you want them to essentially communicate what it is they need to or how clearly they need to? Mm. It's all about communication. Well, ultimately, this was a nice kind of peeling back of the idea of what we're seeing in terms of how we can navigate evaluating ourselves as providers for 
okay, if we are recognizing there's a lack of success in the way that I'm approaching things, can I find a unique or different way to do so? The how in that still is a little bit ambiguous, but mm-hmm. your approach, your example kind of helps narrow in or hone in on why do you care about looking at, you know, several IEPs and Mm -hmm. you did that relatively seasoned, you know, it wasn't your first rodeo. You weren't just fresh out of school. So you knew what you were looking for and you were registering where those gaps were. Mm -hmm. And it took being part of spaces in which you had to go, here's a school expectation. The school expectation is that the student is disabled. Okay. Disabled, Mm -hmm. not different. Disabled. (laughs) And the more we continue to miss the identification of different, because we're not taking in the context of the other elements of that child and we simply rely on the evidence that is provided to us based on performance in a structured space that is outside. It was not built for that child. It was not built for that language. It was not built for that cultural background or history. It wasn't built for those things. So I'm gonna show up disordered. Me, and I'm eloquent, you know? Right, right. (laughs) there's a difference with me. My brain works differently. Yes, I was Mm -hmm. able to succeed, but it does. So making room for that opportunity is something that I really am grateful for when people do it. But when they don't, my goodness, it's a hard space because it's like I have the potential. I do. I do. Mm -hmm. Just take me, me, this person, that is not like anyone else in society because I wasn't born in, or not like the the most common form that is, you know, really escalate. I'm I'm this other thing. Yeah. And I think when we you don't fit into a drop down menu, you have to click other and I'm a, and I'm type it in. Thing. Right. I'm an I'm an <laughs> intersectional. I'm like way over here with all the clickety clacks. Yeah. And there's not a lot of things that take that into consideration to have more fluidity girl i'm as fluid as a breeze as you know and water like air <laughs> clouds there's a lot of fluidity to me structure is not my strong suit mm-hmm. so that type of approach made sense for me right and bringing it home so that others can kind of figure out how to do it in a manner that's clear is something that I have to work on every day. Even in this podcast, how we present our message, how clear and concise and understood and digestible. This is a daily work for a person like me that is not necessarily a thinker in what any, anyone would be like, oh my gosh, Ingrid, you're going to just crush it. And I'm like, am I though? Because there might be a lot of things that I'm missing in the language that it needs to be put in. So I was empathetic to where there were breakdowns for my patients, my adult patients. But I was really curious as to how you felt for your children. So I was I'm so glad that you took the time to, um, you know, 
open up a little bit more specifically because guys, I kind of sprung it on her. She did not know this was what was going to happen today. <laughs> so, um, but we'll continue good. to we'll continue to delve in. I think the next you know phase of this whole thing in terms of how we're really going to talk about it and how we're going to move within it is literally to just kind of get ourselves into the section of the next steps. Like, let's really talk about what we mean when we say we critically assess how SLPs are moving and seeing that they're not making success with patients or leaving patients behind. And then we come in and we're able to make gains that would traditionally not be there because Mm -hmm. we're thinking in a way that's a little bit more fluid and achieving successes for people when no one else would give them a chance. And that's a true story for a good portion of the patients I've personally experienced. So we're mm-hmm. going to continue to move and discuss this. And um, sorry to take up a little bit extra every time, but, you know, <laughs> y'all missed us. So here we go. Yeah, we had to claim some time back, right? (laughs) Right, right. So I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And uh, until next time, bye-bye. See you later.